there. I never used to say that. I used to say my mission is my most important asset or most important thing because it was. I mean, none of us would be there if we didn't have that mission we had to do, right? But parallel to that is taking care of your people because if you take care of them, they take care of the mission, right? My guest today is Rear Admiral Danelle Barrett. Admiral Barrett is one of only 30 women that are in active duty in the United States Navy that have achieved the rank of Admiral. When she retired with the rank of Rear Admiral, she was Director of Navy Cyber Security. Her latest book, Rock the Boat, Embrace Change, Encourage Innovation, and Be a Successful Leader, is an Amazon bestseller in business leadership and management skills. I recently sat down with Admiral Barrett, and we talked about the threat cyber attacks are having on our military and how war in the 21st century will be fought. Admiral Barrett, thank you so much for coming on the show. I was looking forward to it from the first time we spoke uh, a few weeks ago, and I'm really excited. Well, thanks. It's an honor to be here, Charles. It's a, it's a real thrill, okay, definitely. Okay, so you, thanks so much. You are a rear admiral, or were a rear admiral. You're now retired. And uh, would it be okay if I call you Danelle? Would that be proper? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, the reason I'm asking you publicly is because when we spoke on the phone the first time I was calling you Admiral, you said, please call me Danelle. So I just want our listeners to know I'm in no way disrespecting you because anyone who commanded a lot of people and have a lot of military power behind them, I don't want to piss off. So, uh, I, 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 Danelle, you retired a, few, a little less than two years ago as a rear admiral. What is, for those who know nothing about the Navy like myself, I know Admiral is top. It's like a general. What is a rear admiral? Yeah, so um, it's it's the rank in the military that gets you into what are called flag rank. And so um, up until that point, you become a, a commander, a captain. And then when you make admiral, your very first one star, if you will, you get one star on your collar. That's a rear admiral, lower half. And then you get your second star, and then your rear admiral. And then a third star is vice admiral. And four stars would be an admiral, just a straight admiral. So one star is getting coffee for the four-star admiral. Ah, so. <laughs> right. Okay, good. That's a good way of looking at it. So you, you retired about two years or so ago, and you wrote a book, Rock the Boat, Embrace Change, Encourage Innovation, and Be a Successful Leader. But before we talk anything about your book, don't worry, we'll get to it, because I, I breathe through it, and a lot of great stuff I see here on Amazon in business leadership, number one. And uh, you're just burning up the charts. You just came out a few weeks ago. I, I want to talk about something which I remember the first time that I saw uh, you were available to be on the show. Uh, I said to myself, here's a lady who is about 5'2 or 5'3, rising to the top in the Navy, which is not, I don't know, I would say an all-boys club to some extent. And not only to the top, but you were head of cybersecurity. So my first question to you is, Danelle, how does someone like yourself, and I don't know how many females there are in the Navy and in, in, in where you are as admirals, but how do you rise in that all-boys network to the top? Yeah, it's interesting because, uh, you know, we get all the women who are admirals and generals kind of get that question a lot because uh, it is definitely a male-dominated field still, probably only 10 to 13% of the military is female, but those numbers are increasing, thankfully. Um but it's interesting, you know, I, I grew up with three brothers, and so I had a lot of uh, training on how to hold your own. Um, you know, someone with three brothers, someone's always getting shot in the head with a BB gun or getting shanked on the playground or something. I mean, you got to learn how to hold your own with three brothers, right? So when I got to the point where I was entering the Navy, um, you know, I kind of felt like I was with brothers, I'll be honest with you. Um, now, there was a lot of uh, sexual harassment, other things that happened when I first got in the Navy back in 1989, but that thankfully has changed its night and day to what it was back in the day. And there were even things like combat exclusion back when I first joined in 1989. I wouldn't have even been allowed to go to a combatant ship like a aircraft carrier or a destroyer uh, because we were not allowed to go on those ships until I had been in about two or three years, and then they changed the laws. And then they opened up all those jobs. And now, thankfully, we have women on submarines. They're captains of ships. They're captains of strike groups. They're, they're everywhere except the special forces. And I think someday, as long as the females can um, do the physical requirement for that without lowering any standards, if anybody can do that, then, then they should be allowed to do those, too. And I think right. they so, will see, someday. But, but every place else in the right, So you're not for, like, for example, you know, I'm just using an example, women doing 20 push-ups and men having to do 50 push-ups. You're not for that. 
No, no. I mean, the standards are, um, they're a little bit different, just a teeny bit different um, on uh, the way they measure you, like for your, your body fat composition and things like that, just because men and women are a little bit different. But the standards for, you know, your performance, your performance at work, your physical performance, all those things should, you know, should be uh, on par so that people aren't getting sort of like special treatment or anything like that. Nobody, no, no women in the military right. want that. You know? Right. You know, I, I love, I love military people. You folks, uh, you know, you sacrifice so much and the freedoms we have really are because of you. And a few we've had on the show, uh, several Navy SEALs, spe- uh, special forces. And I love having them on the show because you folks have a different way of looking at the world. And I asked once off camera about uh, the requirements for men and ladies uh, in, in the um, in, in the Navy SEALs or such, and he goes, look, if there's a female that can drag me sopping wet uh, out of a situation when I'm totally unconscious and drag me 100 yards, I'm in. But if they can't do that, it, it'll put everyone's lives at stake. You feel that way? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, um, you know, most jobs in the Navy don't require that kind of physical level anymore. I'll be honest with you, a lot of our war fighting is information, digital, it's um, on ships. Um, but you know, we do get in situations, you know, I was in Iraq, boots on ground in Iraq and other places where Navy people do get sent. Um, some of those places where you have to be more physical. So you have to be able to do the jobs regardless of gender. And so you have to be able to take care of your shipmates and save their lives, just like that seal was talking about. And if you can't meet that standard, you shouldn't be in that environment. So you started, did you have any kids when you entered the Navy? I did not. No, I joined right, right out of college. I went through ROTC, at Boston University, and then I joined right uh, at 22. And I had my daughter when I was uh, 29. She was actually born in Bahrain when we were stationed overseas. And your husband, your husband went with you to all these places. He did. He's a good sport, honestly. Um, you know, even to this day, he's a good sport. As you mentioned, my book. I needed someone in my book to uh, for some pictures where someone's wearing a tinfoil hat and looking like a nerd, and someone with their tongue stuck in the keyboard. And he was all in. So his pictures in there, poor guy. He's just always a good sport. So yes. He came with me. He was a physical therapy assistant for many, many years, worked in Navy hospitals and things like that. And now he volunteers. He's a Reiki master and he volunteers to do um, uh, alternative ways to to relax and to deal with stress um, for people with PTSD and wounded warriors and things like that. So he volunteers at the VA hospitals and things like that. So it seems like for a military family, one spouse has to really give up a lot for the other's career, no? Yeah, I mean, I know people who have had dual career tracks and both be very successful, but it comes at the expense of still being together. Normally, they end up spending time on what we call geographic bachelor or geo tours, where one is in one city or one country and one is somewhere else, you know, um, on an operational assignment or whatever. So even within my career, I, you know, I tried to focus to make things as easy as possible in my, my family with regard to moving and staying together. But if there was a choice where they could do what they needed to do and they were happy, then I would go somewhere else if that's what it took to do that. So you do make a lot of sacrifices in terms of uh, mm-hmm. family time and, and trying to get your work-life balance is a challenge in the military, as you can imagine, with anybody, but particularly yeah. in the military with deployment. You know, I have, thank God, we have five kids. And growing up, uh, when they were growing up, I rarely, I can't, I can't say rarely, uh, maybe a handful of times on business trips, I would go away for one or two days and I would really, would really, you know, be tough on my wife. Uh, we had a lot of young kids at home at one time and just doing homework and taking them to school and making lunch and all those kinds of things. Bath time, you know, we relegated who did what. And, uh, you know, just missing them every night. And when I see, you know, on yeah. YouTube, when I see these homecomings where where a, a soldier or, or midshipman's away for a year or nine months uh, deployed and they see the kids and they do all the surprise, you know, homecomings, my heart breaks, you know, it's like these kids are growing up without, without a mother or father. And it's really hard. And then, you know, the the stress on them that they can be killed, uh, is gotta be enormous. Yeah. I think, um, it depends on the field that you're in too, but like, you know, just as an example, when I was in Iraq, I, I never wasn't truthful to my daughter when I would be on a deployment or something like that, but I didn't tell her at that time where I was going because she would have just been very nervous about that. So I, I just let her believe I was deploying like a normal deployment, not going to be boots on ground in Baghdad, right? And so um, eventually she found out through a friend who said, oh, I see Danelle's working in Saddam Hussein's palace or something at her ballet class. And so she kind of figured out and we had the discussion about it. But I told her, you know, I, I do the things to keep safe like everybody else. And I wasn't in harm's way like the poor kids knocking down doors, you know what I mean, in the street. I was mostly on a, a, a base. But uh, 
but I do remember it is hard on the parent who's left back home. I remember one time I got an email from my daughter when I was in Iraq and she said, and she must have had the thesaurus on her, uh, her her spell check. She said, Mom, I've grievously injured my eye. Dad continues to read his newspaper. Mm-hmm. He doesn't care. And then the very next email was, she knows I care. I hate mm-hmm. when she does that kind of stuff. So I remember I looked at everybody in the room. I said, okay, I need 10 minutes to solve war problem on the home front. So I got them both on the phone and we talked to her. I was like, okay, Haley, apologize to dad. You know, he loves you. <laughs> but, you know, it can be, it, it's tough when you're the sole, you know, just like any single parent, you know, that's kind of what it's like for several months. And then you come home and, you know, when you come home, you don't want to barge in and disrupt their routine because they've learned how to figure out how to do things without you around. So you have to be really respectful of the fact that they have their routines now and uh, uh, not to, you know, to insert yourself back in, of course, but not to you know, be the bull in the china shop disrupting what they've Didn't set up. did the military up. do something recently where they're going to keep families from moving around so much in the early stage? I read something to that effect because they saw the attrition rate was so high yes. of just moving families every 12 months, the kids not going to the same school, making new friends and all sorts. Yeah, so usually the moves are about every two to three years, and it is very disruptive. And what the military has done in the past is allowed you to repeat tours in the same area as long as you can get good jobs, you know, competitive jobs that help you continue to develop professionally and that kind of thing. So they haven't looked against that. What they look against is if you stay in one area and you're just kind of going from one job to the next job to the next job, not necessarily, you know, putting some tools in your toolkit there to have you advance. But uh, they they do encourage that. And they don't, they, at least in the Navy, they don't uh, look down upon that as long as you're taking jobs that are you know, where you're really contributing a lot. So well, let me ask you a question. It's, it's on my mind. Uh, you know, you look like such a nice lady. If I didn't know you're rear admiral, I would say you're a bank teller. You're a sweet lady. You're a librarian. Okay. I'm a 6'3", or one time I was 6'3". I think I shrunk. 240-pound guy. I come to you and I'm 21 years old and I have to take orders from you. And I'm saying you're, you know, look, I don't know. This lady has my life in my hands. She's a commander of a ship or... You're in a position of power. Did you have to face that? Well, you definitely had to face that, but how did you deal with those situations? Yeah, so I've found since day one, first of all, you know, coming in at 22 years old, you're going to have people working for you who are 20 years older than you. And when you come in, they know you don't know anything. They know you haven't been in any leadership job unless you've been managing a restaurant or something like that, right? And so don't go in with the hubris thinking you have all the answers. So even at 22, I knew that. And I would rely on my chiefs and my master chiefs and my senior enlisted folks um, to teach me, not just the technical things that I need to learn, but the leadership things too, you know, and other officers that were around me. And so those guys have so much experience. You just have to go in with, you know, we call it sign of the wolf, ears open, mouth closed, right? Go in and listen, do a little more listening than you are talking, right? And realize you don't know what you don't know. And so, but the other piece is have the confidence in yourself to display those leadership things that you do find important. What are your values? What are your priorities? What are your expectations? Make those clear and hold people to account on that, regardless of, you know, what your gender or your size or whatever is. I know some female admirals who are smaller than me, shorter than me, and they just, it, it's not even an issue beyond the first couple of seconds you meet them because their presence in command and their presence of themselves and not in a, uh, you know, blowhardy kind of way, but just the confidence you feel in them is right there. They know their jobs. They're good at their jobs. They take care of their people. And that's all that matters. So you had that from the beginning. You had that presence? Well, I'd like to think I had the confidence. Now, whether I'm, I'm not saying I was smart enough to know everything because I wasn't. You know, I no, learned no, I'm a lot. I'm not saying about knowledge. I'm saying I mean, you I, walked into a yes, room yes, like, you know, yes. I, I, some of the Navy SEALs we have on here, I'd follow these guys through anything. And, you know, we had a, um, a Colonel... Yes. Um, Colonel, uh, Colonel West, right? This guy is just Alan West. He's amazing. You know, he said, I follow, I, I think something to the extent of, uh, I take, you know, I, I go through hell or through fire with a gas can for my men. You know, he do anything for his, for his troops. Yeah. Where a guy, if, if, you know, I have a, I, I have, I have kids. I, I would sleep knowing that he was in charge of my kids. You know, that kind of guy to strong, yeah. you know, yeah. he just, you look at him, I, I thought I, I got scared. So um, you, it, that, that's kind of an it thing. I don't know. Could you really develop that, that kind of presence? I think you either have that kind of confidence or you don't. But what you can do is you can build on some leadership skills that help you um, 
feel more confident. For example, if you know your job very well, then, you know, you can help have people, you know, help you understand what your job is better. Maybe some of the technical aspects or whatever, that builds your confidence. Then there's leadership scenarios that you're put in um, that test you because honestly, being a leader is much about being in the gray, Charles. I mean, it's like, there's not a lot of black and white. There's not just one answer. And so you establish a reputation as you go along and you establish sort of a track record of, Hey, does this person have good judgment? Um, you know, do they, can they balance things? Are they just focused on the mission and not their people? Or, you know, so you have to understand that, you know, it's the whole context of leadership. It's not just one trait that gets you something other than some or something else. But some of the traits that I see that you have to have as a good leader are to be tenacious. You know, you're not going to give up, you know, you, you need to be, um, humble, you know, humble servant leadership. You need to understand that you're there to serve the nation and to serve the people that are working with you and for you. And you need to be, um, uh, you know, have that strong moral compass that people know that you're going to be transparent in your communications and in what you're doing and that your moral compass is true and that you're not going to be, you know, someone that they can't respect your integrity, you know. And so they, you want to have that integrity be something that is a core value that you just you would never compromise. Right. And so as long as you display those kinds of values in everything that you do, then I think that it, leadership becomes a lot easier to do. And not to say there's not challenges and problems because there are, and it becomes really hard and uncomfortable sometimes, but those things will get you. Right. You don't wake up one morning and say, oh, I'm going to have integrity. You either have it or you don't have it, right? Uh, right. That's the fact. And, and that's one thing I'll tell you too, like, you know, when you have problems with people, you have to really determine, is this a character flaw or is this a mistake? Mistakes, you allow for people to fail. You allow for them to recover and learn from character flaws you root out like a cancer because you can't fix it. Yeah. You get them out. I think the problem know? is a lot of people think they could fix those and they spend their time in business and in, and in, and in partners in life thinking that they can change people. And I don't know, I have not seen that happen. Uh, I think many people romanticize that and think they can change people, but boy, oh boy, uh, it's hard to change one trait of my own to try some, you know, try to tell someone else to change one of their traits. Virtually impossible. Yeah, I agree. So you, you started out, really, you started out as an officer? Yes, as an ensign. This is the first rank in the Navy, similar to a second lieutenant in the Air Force or the Army. And you started because mm-hmm. you went to school for that, to get that rank, right? Correct. So I went to ROTC at Boston University, NROTC, where um, I actually didn't have a scholarship. I had to kind of um, finagle my way into getting a commission. I, I think it's funny. I Most of my path is always very circuitous to get what I want. It's not direct. So I remember I had started at Boston University and I had a scholarship from the university for about half my um, tuition and I wanted to do the ROTC program, but at the time they were requiring, I think they still do, calculus and physics. And I am like mathematical antimatter, Charles. I'm awful at math. No public math for me, right? And so I was like, oh gosh, if I take calculus and physics, I'm going to lower my GPA and I may lose my university scholarship and then maybe not even get a Navy scholarship, right? So I went to the unit there and I said, hey, if I take all your drill classes and all your other classes, because you have to take extra, extra kind of engineering and history classes for Navy, uh, will you give me a commission at the end, but you don't have to pay for my schooling, you know? And they said, sure, yeah, we'll do that. So I was like, okay. So I then I promptly got a job that I uh, worked for my room and board, and then I managed a restaurant 30 hours a week, and I took student loans, and I took 21 credit hours in a semester, and I graduated. And so I was able to get my commission albeit maybe a little bit more challenging, but I got my commission as an ensign, just like everybody else in the unit. So sometimes you, you just have to appreciate that you have an opportunity to do something that may not be the easiest one. Um, and don't begrudge anybody else who has a good deal bit on them for having a scholarship. I'm happy for them. Just be glad that you're able to do what you need to do, however you need to get there. You know? So at, at, when you rose to the top, when you became a rear admiral, did you wake up one morning and say when you started out, uh, you know, as when you had your first commission, like I'm going to be an admiral. Did you, was that something that was going on in your head, or you just said, "I'm just going to do the best job I can, and wherever it leads me." Oh my gosh, I remember being in the Navy the first day, and everybody talks in acronyms in the military, as you see in movies and things like that, right? I remember the first day thinking, "I'm never going to survive in this organization. I can't even understand what they're talking about. I don't even think I'm speaking the same language." You know, and so, um, yeah, no, I don't think anybody goes in thinking you're going to be a rare admiral. And I'll be honest with you, it's rarefied air and I'm blessed. I'm very, very lucky to have made admiral because when I got selected, it could have been me or maybe at that point, maybe 10 or 15 other officers. The wind could have blown the different way that day and they would have been picked. Right. So I never take uh, for granted the fact that I am just very, very blessed and lucky. 
Um, and, and also that when, so when you get in, you don't think about it in terms of, you know, I'm going to be an animal or whatever. I didn't anyway. I just thought about in terms of, Hey, I just want to really do a really good job at whatever rank I'm at and continue to contribute at a higher level and try to contribute at, at a higher level. And so that was kind of always my goal because, uh, there's so many factors that go into, uh, selection as you get, we have selection boards that pick people. And as you sort of get up the food chain there, it gets more and more, the pyramid gets tighter at the top. So when you're a captain or a commander, you know, they've already weeded out a bunch of people who maybe aren't, you know, top drawer. And so you're starting to deal with a very competitive group and a very uh, qualified and, and exceptionally eye-watering group. And so um, anybody who gets selected at those ranks for anything, you're just happy and grateful because it could right. be anybody, you know, any of the way the winds would blow that day. Like you know, you go to an Ivy League school as a freshman every one of those kids got a 1600 on their SATs. <laughs> so you're in a group where everyone is really competitive. They, they've already, you're, you're, you're not, you're not, right. you know, the sun doesn't shine on you, you know? That's right. That's, That's right. And then you have to figure, okay, how am I going to contribute then um, in that Ivy league school or wherever, where I'm going to make a difference to make something better. And that's just what you focus on. And don't worry about all the politics and the rest. That'll take care of itself. So, yeah. so are the, there are only 31 females in the Navy at the rank of admiral? Oh, no, I think there's, uh, I'm not sure the exact number now. I think there's about 120 in all the history of the Navy. There's probably 30 now, I would so say. So right, right now, I'd have right to go now back we could put all the admirals that are females in the Navy in one room. That's amazing. Yeah, we'd be a little tight squeeze, but yeah, you could do well, it. Well, we got a big room. <laughs> but that's, that's you know, that's astounding. Yeah, that's that's astounding that you, you know, to, to, to move up the ranks and then to do it in... I don't know how many people are in the Navy. Uh, a couple hundred thousand or so. Oh, hundreds yeah. of thousands. Yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. Wow, yeah, little, that's that's yeah, yeah. wild. I'm just in awe of that. I graduated second to last in high school, so I can't even think about you know where you're at the top quarter of one percent of anything. So okay, so. Well, Charles, don't discount that. Don't discount that. I was the I was at the second to last in my Rossi unit too, and so you know what do they call the guy who graduates at the bottom of medical What's school? Doctor, yeah. doctor, right? So. You're doing uh, just fine. You're, you're so a lot smarter than me on that. <laughs> so you, you go into the Navy. Now, as you go, what, what, when do you have people's, uh, what are they, sailors? When do you have life and death? When is that in your hands? How old are you at that time? Well, the first job I was at, I didn't, I didn't really have that until I was in some operational jobs. And like I said, I wasn't allowed on combatant ships for the first several years, probably the first five years. But once you start to be able to go to combatant units, that's when you can, can, can come into those situations. Most of the time, the Navy in general is doing things from ships that are operational, unless you're with the SEALs or something. But So for us, we're a little bit removed from the hand-to-hand combat, but it's also still very dangerous, you know, you know the coal, for example, or different things like that. Um, and so uh, a lot of times what we will do, like on the last deployment I was on, we were doing things in support of uh, – we were doing all the air operations in support of ground troops in Afghanistan. So they would call in, hey, I need an airstrike, and then our, our aircraft would go and do that airstrike. So we're a bit removed from that perspective. But we also have times like where you are sent ashore for different things, um, roles. Like So, for example, we have Navy people who were stationed on the ground in Afghanistan or Iraq or – like I was in Haiti too for the last relief operations in 2010. So there are opportunities to do things like that. And I always found those very, very rewarding. I always loved being at the operational jobs, even though like you had mentioned earlier, Charles, that you're away from your family and that really is awful. That's the part that I hate the most. But, uh, but when you're in those operational jobs, you really have a sense of purpose and a sense of teamwork and a sense of doing something for the greater good. And that always is very rewarding emotionally. And just uh, you just want to do your best for whatever situation. Yeah, you're on the you're front in. line for our country. You know, you're you're the barrier between freedom and everything right. else. So uh, the responsibility there. And, and, you know, let's face it, you're risking your life uh, to do that, um, regardless of where you are and what function you serve. Yeah. Yeah, and it's true. And one of the things I'm most proud of always in the military is, you know, we we do uh, what's called the oath of office, which is when you raise your hand and you say, I swear to protect and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic, you know, bear truth, faith, and allegiance to that. And and I really take that to heart. I remember the first time I saw the Constitution actually in the National Archives was probably about six years ago, and I actually teared up. I was so moved by that because to me, those words are so important because we are so blessed in this country and so lucky to have the freedoms we do. And you don't realize that until you go live other places and you realize, okay, hey, people can't do the kind of things we can or can't say. So even with all our flaws in our country, I'm not saying we're perfect. We live in the best country in the world, and I would die for our ability to continue that 
freedom, as would anybody in service who wears the cloth of the nation. Um, you know, our goal is to make sure that freedom never goes away. And like, I don't care that you take a knee, honestly, that's your way to protest. That's fine. I will die for your right to take a knee because that's so important to me for you to be able to express yourself in this country. You know what I mean? And so I think there's a lot of military people who feel the same, that it's really important for us to make sure that that our way of life here doesn't, our democracy, you know, endures. Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. You hear that? That's what turkeys sound like. You know what else sounds like turkeys? This. There's a lot of value there. How do you see that? Yeah, you really have to break it up into the sections of healthcare. Not surprising when the 21st annual trust barometer published by Edelman Research shows that more Americans distrust institutions like the media, government, and business than ever before. That's why podcasts like The Charles Mizrahi Show have taken off like a moonshot. Because, as Edelman reports, people are craving facts. Real facts. Not the whitewashed mumbo-jumbo cooked up by the financial media. So if you want straight-up facts on where the real money is made in stocks, and you want it served up in a way that's fun, simple to follow, and profitable, stop listening to the turkeys and listen to America's number one alpha investor, Charles Mizrahi, and how he helped an American patriot you know well make more money in two weeks than most investors make in two years. For more details, go to investingpatriots.com. That's investingpatriots, all one word, dot com. I guarantee you'll be glad you did. Yeah, you know, growing up, I remember as a kid uh, when someone bothered you with something and you stood in... And you know, got near their game or stood in their area, you they would get away, and you say, "Well, it's a free country." You know, you think now is it? I think now as an adult, how many places in the world could one say that? You know, we we take so many of our freedoms for granted that uh, it's it's like the air we breathe. You don't you know you don't think about oxygen until you don't have it, and uh, um, it, it's just astounding that so many young people today don't recognize the sacrifices that people like you and, and, and the rest of the military, that you're there on the front line while they're partying and protesting and doing all those things. You're the reason they were able to do that. Yeah. And, and you know what, as long as they understand that, that some, you know, and if they don't want to do that, that's okay. I mean, there's all sorts of service. You could be a teacher, you could volunteer your time at a church or, a, you know, organizations that help people. I mean, there's all sorts of ways to serve the community and the country. Um, but you do want them to appreciate that they have those liberties. You know, whether or not they appreciate the people who give them those liberties or enable those liberties, that's okay. We're not looking for thanks, right? But you want them to appreciate the fact that this country gives them those liberties. And it might be something simple. I mean, my husband's from Colombia and South America, and his family has never been able to visit us because, you know, they can't get a visa to come visit us, even a tourist visa, because they don't have enough bank accounts and property that are rich, Right. And so um, it's it's things like that. Like, you know, you and I would just go get a ticket and get our passport and be on our way. We just don't even think about it. You know, but there's countries in the world that can't do that kind of thing or they don't have clean water or they don't have the right to speak up. You know, and uh, we just need to always make sure that we are the country that provides that, you know, kind of guide and just do our best to have the best like moral compass that we can have, you know what I mean? The best values that we can have when it comes to democracy. And again, we're not perfect. I get it. I'm not going to be Pollyanna about it. You know, I know we got our own problems. And we've got a history of doing some shady stuff too, but I think all in all, our constitution has endured because our founding fathers wrote a pretty solid document that's uh, stood the test of yeah, time. Yeah. And, and we're testament to that, that uh, anytime there's calamity or anything in the world, it's the American people who are the largest charity givers in the world we send people on the ground to go help. It, it's an ethos that our country developed of not only uh, being one of wealth and being one, one wealth, we have drinking water. <laughs> How many people in the world could have clean drinking water or sanitation? You know, every time I flush my toilet, I turn on my sink and I'm in my bathroom, I'm saying, God bless America. You know, it's, it's that, it, when, it, you know, in 1990, I was in, um, I was in Russia when it was just turned from the Soviet Union to Russia. And I remember walking into a, uh, um, a grocery. It wasn't a grocery, it was a supermarket. And there was nothing on the shelves, a couple of dented cans, and there was one piece of meat from a hook with fat on it with a whole bunch of flies. And when I came home, I told my wife, I said, Ellen, I just like to walk around Costco or Walmart and just say, you don't realize 
most countries they don't have drinking water, and we have forty-eight different brands of mustard. You know, that's that doesn't come from you yeah. know out of the ground. It come from air. You know, it comes from a system of government and yeah. from people who are willing to do amazing things. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and operationally, right? So you're, what was the hotspot? You said you were in Iraq, you were in Afghanistan. Uh, I was in Iraq and I was on a carrier that was off the, in the Gulf of Oman supporting Afghanistan. Um, so I was in charge of like all the communications um, on, for those kinds of things. I'd be in charge of communications or data and stuff like that. So when we were doing the Afghanistan operations, I needed to make sure that our planes could talk to the ground forces, could talk to other ships in the area and all that kind of stuff so that we could command and control, if you will, those operations where we were providing, um, you know, airstrikes for troops that were imperiled on the ground. So someone would call in an airstrike and need help. And then our, our aircraft, our jets would go off the carrier, go over there, do the strike and come back, that kind of thing. So I was in charge of making sure those, all those communications were. Uh, what rank were you at that time? I was a captain. And how many people mm-hmm. are under you when you're doing this that you're responsible for? Um, well, you have an immediate kind of core that work with you, but then in the whole strike group, there would be, you know, communications people on each of those ships. So several hundred across different ships and and in different places that you would be coordinating all their efforts. And how old are you now at that time? Not now, but at that time. Uh, At that time, well, when I was a captain, uh, so I would have been probably 45. you You have as much responsibility as a CEO running a business in charge of billions, hundreds of billions of dollars or tens of billions of dollars at the minimum of hardware and people's lives. So, you know, I, I, I just, I still marvel at the fact that the military is able to take young people and turn them into such responsible leaders that not only that amazing amounts of money are just being controlled by, by these people, but also so many lives and so many, if, if one screw up happened, it's it's over for someone somewhere. Yeah, and that's one thing you think about all the time. Like, I always used to try to put myself in the shoes of that 18-year-old because the more senior you get, the more you kind of forget what right, it feels like right, to be 18. Right. And it's probably your first right. job. And you, you know, you got your tongue stuck in the keyboard, and you're like, oh, my God, I don't know what's going on, right? And so, and you also put yourself in their parents' shoes. Like, you want to keep their kids safe, right? And so it's really, it was always really important to me, no matter what we did, that I was taking care of those sailors just as if, I, you know, their parent would want, you know, as a parent, I would want someone right. to take care of my daughter. You know what I mean? And so um, I think we, that's a real important obligation, no matter how old that person gets, that, you know, taking care of your sailors is really, really important. And not just, you know, people talk a big game about, you know, hey, taking care of your people and people are my most important asset. And I never used to say that. I say my mission is my most important asset or most important thing because it was. I mean, none of us would be there if we didn't have that mission we had to do, right? But parallel to that is taking care of your people, because if you take care of them, they take care of the mission, right? And when I say taking care of people, I mean, it means doing the tough leadership stuff of the day-to-day. You know, when they're having a really stressful day, recognizing that, saying, hey, shipmate, you don't look like yourself today. What's going on? Can I help? Or making sure their evaluations, their awards are done on time, um, recognizing them for good contributions, or course correcting, you know, when they need a little corrective action, right? And making sure they understand the importance of a second chance. You know, like we talked about, was that a character flaw or did that poor kid just screw up and needs a little bit of course correct here and they'll learn from that, right? And so um, the day-to-day thing of leadership is what takes time and what's important and all that mentoring. And if you're truly a good leader, you take the time to do those things day-to-day. Right, right. You know what I mean? Don't just talk a big game about right, it. Because you know? every one of those sailors are, is someone's uh, mother, father, brother, sister, some son of a parent or daughter of a parent. And, you know, once you start thinking like that, well, thank God I'm not military because I'd be terrible. I just just could, I would be paralyzed to do anything. I, to have that kind of awesome responsibility, uh, I just. (laughs) You're a dad of five. You would be, you would fit right in. (laughs) I don't know. You're being too kind. So you, you, you go, you move up the, move up the ranks. And I find your last, I think it was your last position where you become director of cybersecurity. Yeah, so it's interesting. When I started out, um, I couldn't program my VCR. I was a history major, okay? And so now I can program routers. So it's all the crazy stuff you never think you'll learn that someone will teach you, right? Um, But I found I really loved the technology piece. And um, I found, too, that as the Navy started to get computers and networks and stuff, that was a natural fit for me. So, um, yeah, so I got involved with, in my last two jobs, I was director of uh, cyber offensive and defensive operations at United States Cyber Command. So anything the Department of Defense was doing with uh 
oper- cyber operations. Um, I was I was responsible for the current operations of that. So anything in the next you know 72 hours, if you will. And then after that, I went to be the deputy CIO of the Navy and the uh, director of cybersecurity for policy and writing policy and helping make sure that we funded the right capabilities for the future. So- I, we, I just read what, you know, everything's uh, what's public information in, Wolf, in the Wall Street Journal about companies uh, with cyber attacks in terms of businesses with with ransomware and all that. But in the military and I don't know, I, I, I don't know if you could disclose or not, but uh, they must be repeatedly being hit with all types of attacks on their systems. Yeah, like millions of times a day. And those stats are out there on the military networks, people are always going after the military networks. And they also go after sort of what I would consider the soft underbelly. So we have a lot of defense industrial based partners, mm-hmm. people that we buy equipment from or buy services that are commercial vendors. And so they have a lot of our data and our information. And so they, the hackers will also go after them knowing that they may be a little easier target, but can still affect the military if they get that information. So we have a broad swath that we work with a lot of agencies on too, you know, the national security agency, the FBI, um, department of Homeland security and CISA. So we work with a lot of other agencies. It's not like we go this alone. It's a real whole of government effort to kind of get after that problem. Cause you're right, Charles. I mean, it doesn't just affect the military, it affects our critical infrastructure, like our SCADA and the things that control our power and water and things like that. We have to keep all of that safe. Those are all national security concerns for our government and for our people. And um, you've seen it recently, too, with, like you said, all the increase in ransomware. Now, they've been kind of going after people to get money. Uh, but what if it was, you know, Iran, Korea, North Korea, China and Russia, who are our big cyber four adversaries, you know, what if they're going after those kind of things? And you you just have to, it's a constant cat and mouse game and you're never going to have an impenetrable network or a perfect solution, but you just have to be resilient enough that if you do take that hit, that you can fight through that and that you can give that hit to somebody else. I mean, as a nation, we don't want to just get hit, punched in the face all the time, right? We may want to do the punches sometimes. And sometimes that may be a cyber as opposed to a dropping a bomb or something. Is this, is this the battlefield, uh, is cybersecurity or cyber attacks, the new battlefield of the 21st century? A war is going to be fought uh, in, in ether and not so much on the ground because you could do so much more to a country by knocking out their electricity. Yeah, I, I believe so. Um, there's some traditionalists that don't believe that, but I totally believe that the future wars will be information-based or they will be uh, information impactful, meaning like I can, like you said, disrupt your water supply, your food supply, your your agriculture. I mean, just think about cyber uh, agriculture attacks. You know, everything in agriculture is automated now. I mean, uh, I have a, a, do- a, nie- a, a niece who's marrying a, a dairy farmer and his like his whole dairy farm is automated. The cows come in, they kind of milk themselves and all kinds of stuff. I mean, he wouldn't even have enough people to milk those cows anymore. You know what I mean? If that someone cyber attacked him or whatever. So you can affect everything in Everything is so disruptive, um, and we don't think through second and third order effects a lot of times. So, for example, after 9-11, I don't know if you remember, but they shut down all the train trestles um, while they looked underneath in case there were any bombs there. They wanted to make sure there were no bombs underneath all the train trestles, right? So they shut down railways for several days. Well, what they didn't realize was with like uh, within three days, L.A. would have run out of fresh water because the only way to move chlorine, which you need to purify water, was via rail. And no one has thought about that, right? So what if you run out of fresh water? What's the second and third order effects of that? Well, you know, can't do generators, can't do ACs, and hospitals don't work. I mean, it just starts to get dystopian, you know, and it kind of goes crazy. But we have to, as a nation, be able to fight through those kind of attacks, because I do believe, like you said, that the future wars will be that. And there'll also be disinformation campaigns or misinformation campaigns that can cause you to do something. Like, you know, we saw recently during elections and other things, you know, the Russians didn't have to... Uh, get in and do it all themselves. They just had to plant the wrong story with the right group of crazies to get it all spread out. You know, people don't question, hey, is that factual? Where am I hearing that from? Should I be reposting that on social media or, or passing that on? Because that influence operation could, uh, you know, achieve an effect that even dropping 10 bombs wouldn't achieve as much as that one disinformation campaign could achieve. So we have to be smart about that as a nation. Yeah, my, my fear is, you know, I, I don't think, look, we have so many great defense systems, uh, anyone dropping a bomb on New York City, that's not my fear. My fear is 
the subway tracks, uh, you know, I remember p- taking Pelham 123, the original one, where they take over, a group of thieves take over the uh, the trains. Yeah, Denzel yeah. Well, The, the yeah, original yeah, one yeah. was before Denzel, was, uh, I think it was Walter Matthau, and Gene, was it, yeah, Walter Matthau, the original, oh, okay. original one. okay, okay. And I remember go, so fearful on the trains, that, and the trains used to have um, emergency uh, uh, stuff. So I thought, oh my gosh, if you're on those trains. But just screwing up the systems there, causing chaos, or or uh, when we yeah. have blackouts, which are which are pretty rare uh, in New York, we had one. It, you 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 could take a country back to the dark ages in a heartbeat, and today with with yep. uh, all our communications, with everything being um, uh, internet and everything being wireless, electricity, we're done with that. We're 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 literally back to the 1700s in a heartbeat. Yeah, and, and we're not prepared for that because we don't kind of drill to that. Or if we do drill to it, they do what's called a tabletop. They just kind of talk their way through it. But until you actually force yourself to do it, like look what happened in Texas yeah, with those yeah. blackouts, right, on right. electricity. Okay. Those people, that was, a, that was a hot mess, right? And that was just caused by something they figured out could have happened. That wasn't any cyber attack or anything. But, and that wasn't that long. I mean, what if that had gone on for five months? For four months. I mean, you know, people think too. Oh, well, if there's a cyber attack, we'll get back up and rolling in a couple of days. Well, maybe yeah, not. It's just not a. Re- it's not very controlled. So it's not, I'm sorry. It's not just you know rebooting your computer. It's you know think about old people without air right. conditioning in the summer who'll die, uh, young babies in incubators. Yeah. Uh, people on all sorts of who need dialysis. It just it it I, I really get scared just thinking about Can't these see. things. Yeah, and I don't mean to freak you out. I don't want to be like all death and gloom, but it's just our nation needs to think through how we'll be resilient in those situations. You know, how will we do traffic control? How will we do hospital work? How will we do electricity? How will we do water? You know, all, just think through how we'll do those things so we don't have kind of breakdowns in law and order because of that. And so we just have to think through it and have some plans in place that we can practice and exercise and be ready should we have I know New York you want to create chaos just have one traffic light go out and people just don't know what to do you know no one's letting anyone go at a traffic it (laughs) becomes a nightmare a nightmare of traffic so do you yeah then you add New York City where no one wants to give anybody oh no forget it you know it's exactly (laughs) what I'm talking about you know even with traffic lights we have all this road rage and 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 just alpha trying to be the first one no one lets anyone Mm -hmm. in Uh, how prepared are we for this any type of cyber attacks on on a national level? I think they've done a lot of good work in the last couple of years, particularly on the areas of of critical infrastructure, you know, finance, water, electric. But because we don't own all those, like, you know, some countries like Russia, China, they own all that. It's state-owned. They can control that in a different way, right? Um, Because we don't own those, we have to have a partnership with our commercial vendors and, and industry partners. And they've been good because they recognize too that these are problems. So everybody's working towards the same goal. It's just, it's just never, it's, it's a never ending thing. It's a cat and mouse game. You have to keep trying to be one step ahead of your adversary, sharing information, putting plans in place that'll work, and that kind of thing. So, being a mother, being a, a wife, a rising to the top in the military as you've done, especially the Navy, would you recommend any young woman today to join the Navy? Yeah, I absolutely would. I think because one, the you can balance both. You can do both. I mean, my daughter and I are still, we talk every day still, you know, and she was able to realize her dream like I was mine because I made it a priority for her that I would, yeah, she's a professional ballerina and I made it a priority for her that she could get the training she needed from, from very, very little all the way up until she, she started in her career. And so you just have to think about, and same with my husband too. Like, you know, I, made sure that I went, took orders to uh, a communication station in Puerto Rico where he could study his, his medical things in his, his first language and make it easier for him. So you, you can work these things in balance, but you have to make deliberate choices. And if I could give you just an example, a little sea story, Charles, about um, how this hit home for me at a very early level. I was my first tour on a ship. I was probably in the Navy about four or five years, five, about five years at that point. And I, um, uh, my daughter was having a half grade at school at her little child development center. She's about three and a half years old. It was about three miles down the road from the ship. And a half grade is literally where they make some contraption out of, you know, paper and glue, whatever glue they're not eating. And they walk around the park and I'm like, hi, mom, hi, mom, right? And that's it. That's the half grade. It takes like five minutes, right? And so I said, okay, I dropped her off in the morning. I said, okay, mommy will be there and I'll see you. So I got to the ship and we were getting underway the next day for a very big exercise. So we had a lot of people coming aboard. 
probably like 600 people additional to the staff and the ship. And a lot of them were Air Force people or other people who didn't weren't familiar even with the Navy. So they're like, what's the port? What's the starboard? I don't know what's going on, you know? So it's complete chaos. And I was in charge of the network, getting them on the accounts and things like that. So anyway, the hat parade supposed to go down at 10 o'clock. I got out of the ship maybe five minutes to 10. I get over to this child development center and hat parade's over. There's nobody in the parking lot, nothing. And I see the kids out on the playground. And I was like, ah. So I get out of the car and I go over to the fence and I, my daughter sees me and she's across the playground. And you know how those pictures, they have some space where you can see like the Great Wall of China or, you know, you can see the Grand Canyon. That's what my kid's mouth looked like because she just like this and started bawling. And she ran over to the fence and she said, mommy, you promised you were going to be here and you weren't. And so I was like, rip my heart out, take it now, bad parent of the decade award. I'm like, but at that moment I said, you know, what am I doing? I'm not going to be that parent that always puts their family second, you know what I mean? Regardless of service, there's times in service where you, you know, everything comes first because of the service, but it's not every time. And it doesn't have to be every time. You have to be confident enough to say no sometimes, or I needed a little bit of time to do this thing with my family because it's just as important and we're not at war or, you know, it's just in a normal day at the office and I don't need to spend 12 hours here and miss my kid's baseball game or whatever. And so no lie about six months after that, it's, I got melting cupcakes in the car. It's the same scenario. We're getting underway the next day for an exercise. Guy's got a ton of people on. And I went to my boss and I said, listen, I need one hour to go to the Child Development Center to have this little birthday party. He's like, you can't leave now. It's crazy. It's crazy. I said, sir, it's going to be crazy in an hour. It's going to be crazy all night. I'm going to be with you for the next three weeks. Just give me an hour. He's like, okay, you be back here in an hour. So I went over and we did the cake and she was all excited and, you know, kids getting jacked up on sugar. I'm sure the Child Development Center loved me that day, right? And so came, you know, but do you think, you know, when my promotion board for lieutenant commander, which was my next rank, came up that somebody on the board goes, oh, Barrett, well, she she missed an hour of pre-underway com checks back in 2016. There's no way we can promote her. No, nobody's going to remember that or care about that. But would my daughter have remembered that I missed her birthday? Yes, she would have. You know, so you have to look, whether it's in the civilian or military world, how you balance that, how you do that work-life balance without, you can do it. You got to consciously work at it. And I always felt never perfect at it. Believe me, I made my mistakes and I was never a perfect mom or a perfect officer, but you just do your best and to try to balance. Wow. All right. So the, uh, you wrote this book, Rock the Boat. Embrace change, encourage innovation, and be a successful leader. It's at number one areas, categories in Amazon. Briefly, because our time is running up, Danelle, I want you to just explain to me, there are a zillion and one books out there on leadership. What is the message of your book? Because I found that a lot of these books, it's one page of great stuff and 300 pages of just fluff. And I know your book's pretty concise. It's it's short, which I liked. What is the one, the, the, well, I mean, it's more than one message. What is the message of, why am I reading this book? What am I getting out of this? Yeah, so I want it to be like we're having a conversation now, a practical conversation that you would have with your mentor, that someone gives you some actual advice that you can do something with, and not in big formulas or heavy theory or all that. I mean, just like having a conversation with somebody like, hey, what what do I do if my boss is a jerk? I mean, that's kind of a basic thing, right? You know, you know, finding three positives out of any failure you have and, you know, allowing some failure or just how do you inspire somebody? You know, I mean, people always ask me who inspires you. And it's not like, you know, John Paul Jones or some big naval figure, right? It's it's Walt Disney. I mean, I have a, had a picture of Walt Disney hanging in my office in the Pentagon where he's walking underneath Sleeping Beauty's Castle before the park opens and all the crazy kids are running around. And he's just thinking, right? Because think about somebody who looks at Swampland in Florida and sees flying elephants with adults and children on them having a great time, and then he makes it a reality. That is inspirational to me. So, you know, you think about how can you inspire somebody and inspire them with simplicity and with care. Well, beautiful. Great. I'm looking here at some of the uh, reviews, uh, some heavy hitters here. You have the sales director, sales director of uh, McAfee. You have U.S. Marine Corps, Lieutenant General, uh, former Supreme Allied Commander at NATO. These are guys you don't want to really piss off. Okay, so you got some really, another vice admiral. Wow, this is good. And if, you know, I always felt that if, if I was going to read any book on leadership, it was going to be from someone in the military because in business, it's money, right? In the military, it's lives. 
And those mistakes you can't redo or can't write a check for. You got to be good and you got to be right. And any decision you make, you have to, you have to, you know, you look, as you said, you never have all the facts, right? You can only deal with what you have at that moment to make a decision. And I find that in investing where, you know, you never have everything. It's an imperfect world and you have to have enough pieces of the puzzle to make an educated decisions. And yes, sometimes you will be wrong, but you don't want to be wrong from 10 feet off the ground. You want to be wrong from one foot, one feet off the ground, one foot off the ground. So I, I see that in the military, you know, especially with people like yourself, just, uh, I, I really consider it a blessing that you, you have been, um, and many others like you who are in the military have shared your, uh, not only inspiration for what, t- what type of people you could be, but also leadership and how to get ahead because these things are, we could talk about them, but nothing like someone who's seen real firefights and, and, and how to put their life on the line to, to really give those lessons. Yeah. And what I would say too is, um, you know, I always say leadership so easy a monkey could do it. Cause I, I really believe at its core, it's, it's regardless of what industry you're in, those kind of kind of core concepts of taking care of people, taking care of the mission, being tenacious, resourceful, having empathy, uh, strong moral compass, those don't know any industry. There's no bounds there. You know what I mean? You may have a different perspective, like you said, because of the nature of the military work and there's a life or death aspect to it sometimes, you know what I mean? But for the most part, the leadership day to day, it it knows no industry bounds. If you're a good leader in this industry, yeah. you'll be a good leader. Yeah, in that's, you know, true. You know, when we, one of the things I do in my newsletter, Alpha Investors, we, when we look for companies, and I've done this my whole career and it's really been just a, it's been, a, I, I consider it like a shortcut, but most people didn't even look at it. They look at the company, they look at the balance sheet, they miss looking at the CEO. And I always say that, you know, you, you follow the CEO, great CEOs, no matter where you plant them, they're going to do great. And terrible CEOs that lack integrity, that continually talk a great game, but never produce a great salespeople, you follow them and the businesses they do at best are okay. And at worst, they destroy them. But a great business leader, I, I follow in, and, and we just, you know, we follow and we have a database. It's like, you know, trading baseball cards. We just follow these guys from wherever company they're going. And if they, they're great, you know, male or female, we want to we want to invest alongside them. And so uh, you're right. You know, I, I have a, mm-hmm. a colleague and, uh, and a friend who is a captain in the Marines who um, we can have on the show in a few weeks, uh, Dr. Wes Gray. And he was a Marine. And he told me once when I first met him about 10, uh, more like 12 years, 12 years ago, he said, grow where you're planted because that's what they teach in the Marines. So don't bitch about anything. Just grow where yeah. you're planted. You hear this is the conditions. And that has changed a lot of my thinking. You know, I don't sit there. I wish this was this. Just deal with yeah. what the problem is at hand and grow from there. Yeah. And actually, it's so funny. I've, I've heard people say that before. And I had a boss one time. He was, I was going to a job and I wasn't really excited about it. It didn't seem all that interesting. He's like, hey, make lemonade out of lemon, right? Just figure out what you're going to learn out of that job, what you're going to contribute to it. And just stop complaining, yeah. get to work, you know? And so there is a lot to be said for grow where you're planted and grow yeah, lemon trees, I, I right? just like that, you know, <laughs> the lemon, I don't know if I could ever make good lemonade, but I'm just thinking, grow where you plant it is, wherever you end up, just deal with the facts mm-hmm. that you have there and just make the right. best of it because bitching about it, it's not going to change it. You're still back to the same spot. Yep, yep, and you can't yeah. make it better. You just got to go in with that kind of positive yeah, attitude. Beautiful. Yeah. Uh, Danelle Barrett, I want to thank you. The name of the book is Rock the Boat, Embrace Change, Encourage Innovation, and Be a Successful Leader, and I know that you've heard this so many times, but, uh, and, and I'm sure you feel the same way each time. I really sincerely want to thank you for your service because it's people like you allow me and my family to sleep good, well at night. Uh, and, and it's, it's for that sacrifice. I didn't make it. You did. So thank you so much. Oh, thanks Charles. And thanks to you and everybody else who supports the military. It means a lot to us. So thanks for the kind words. I really appreciate uh, the opportunity my, my today. My pleasure and God bless you and keep doing, and keep doing great stuff. Thanks so much, Danelle. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Charles Mizrahi Show. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back. Either way, we'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also see the video of the interview on The Charles Mizrahi Show channel on YouTube.